It's Thursday, September 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. All of the available vaccines have been proven to be safe and effective against serious illness and hospitalization. But is there one that stands out above the rest? A series of studies have found that the Moderna vaccine may provide the most protection when it comes to antibodies and hospitalization. Part of it may be that the vaccine delivers a larger dose than Pfizer. Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for why Moderna has the edge. Next, schools have not been spared in the labor shortage going on in the country. There is an urgent need for more substitute teachers and cafeteria workers, but school bus drivers are also sorely needed in districts all over the country. School districts have resorted to offering signing bonuses and even paying parents to drive their own kids to school. Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill, joins us for the bus driver shortage. Finally, Amazon is continuing its plans to expand beyond the online marketplace. They are planning on brick-and-mortar department stores where they can sell their own apparel brands with high-tech dressing rooms. Apparel is seen as a big winner for the company who has over 100 private label brands and just surpassed Walmart as the country's largest seller of clothing. Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's no argument on whether or not we should get a booster because we can't expect that vaccines are 100% infinite in terms of their durability. The question is, is when is the best time to give the booster? Is it now or do we wait to see the possibility of waning effectiveness in the future? Joining us now is Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Apoorva. Thanks for having me. I want to start off, we're going to talk about vaccines. I want to start off by saying that the three vaccines that we have, the Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer, first off, they're all safe, very effective at preventing severe COVID and hospitalization. But for the longest time, there's always been this kind of, you know, big question, which one of the vaccines is better? I remember early on in the pandemic when the vaccines were being rolled out, memes across the internet, everybody saying, oh, I got Pfizer, it's the best one, all this. But we've seen a number of studies now kind of bearing out that Moderna actually has uh, some some clear advantages. Not to say that it's any better or anything like that, but there are a couple of things that are working more in its favor and as far as its effectiveness. So, Apoorva, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with it? I'm glad you started out saying all of the vaccines are very effective. So I think that's number one, that they are all actually extremely good at preventing severe disease and hospitalization, which is ultimately the big goal for these vaccines. But what has emerged over the last few months is that in some of these studies, it's looking like the protection from Moderna is a little bit more durable. It's staying at higher levels over time than the protection from Pfizer. We already sort of knew that the J&J vaccine is a little bit less protective than the other two. We knew that from the clinical trials, but we thought that Pfizer and Moderna were basically the same. And what these studies are showing us is that they're almost the same, but Moderna's slightly ahead. You know, one of the things uh, that came out, I guess the CDC had uh, some research that was published just this past week talking about at least hospitalization rates and, uh, you know, protecting against hospitalization. For Pfizer, that was at 91%. That fell to 77% after a four-month period. For Moderna, there was no decline over that same period. 
That's right. So, you know, most of these studies are showing differences at those levels. So in this study, the Moderna and the Pfizer were different by about 14 or 15 points. And that's sort of what a bunch of studies have shown is that Pfizer seems to be trailing Moderna by about 10 to 15 points when it comes to severe disease and hospitalization. The differences are a little bit bigger when it comes to um, preventing infection. But again, severe disease is a big goal. And so that's really what we're looking at. And in fact, there was a, a new study that just came out today in the New England Journal of Medicine showing a similar trend. They found that 5,000 healthcare workers, they looked at Pfizer and Moderna and they found Pfizer is about 90% and Moderna is about 96. So, you know, they're all showing these, these small differences between the two. And then one of the other studies that we saw had to deal with antibodies and how Moderna produced, I guess, one third to one half more than Pfizer did. Is that something like that? You know, that sounds like a huge difference when you hear about it, one third to one half, but these are not differences in how effective the vaccines are. These are just differences in what we call antibody titers. And just for comparison, just in among a regular population, there can be a hundredfold difference between people. So a two to threefold difference is nothing at all and really doesn't have much of a clinical impact. So scientists are not really worried about that. It seems more like over the long term, we know that antibodies wane and it's possible that Pfizer's wane a little bit more than Moderna's. So what does this do for that conversation about booster shots? You know, that's interesting. I think, you know, I've just been listening to the CDC advisors debate all day about which boosters people should get and which people should get them and when. And it's a little bit confusing because right now Pfizer is the one that is up on the table for the FDA to decide about. But, you know, it'd be very tricky for them to recommend that only people who got Pfizer before should get Pfizer. Well, what about all the people who got Moderna? So it's not very clear what's going to happen. It's possible they'll just delay a decision until the Moderna one is also available. Moderna's already applied. It's just the conversation is taking longer. So um, I don't want anybody to come away with the impression that Moderna is so much better that they should all just go get the Moderna booster. I don't think that's what these data are showing at all. It's just documenting, for example, there are differences in how much of the dose that each vaccine delivered. Pfizer used 30 micrograms and Moderna used 100. Both companies were just guessing at the start of the pandemic. So that may be one of the differences. And Pfizer spaced its two doses by three weeks. Moderna spaced its by four. And there's some evidence that that, you know, it might be better to have those two doses staggered longer, which we couldn't do. Again, at the start of the pandemic, we just did not have that luxury. But now that we have a little bit more time, there are some studies showing that it might be better to have the second dose come later. So there's a bunch of things here that we need to think through before we decide what to do with boosters. And I think that's what the FDA and the CDC are really spending time on right now. I just uh, like the line at the end that uh, one of the scientists you were speaking to that When this whole thing was happening with the vaccines, everybody was like, well, we'll be happy if we get an efficacy rate of 50 to 60 percent. And what we've gotten with these mRNA vaccines, at least uh, the Pfizer and Moderna is something much higher. (laughs) And we're still kind of parsing it out and trying to see which one's better. That's right. And even with J&J, actually, we started out higher than that. So this is a very luxurious problem to have. It's, it, these vaccines are way better than we thought. So now we can actually, you know, really be nitpicky and say, well, well I don't want 94. I want 96. <laughs> Things <laughs> right. like that. Exactly. Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. When we have to call a family at 7 o'clock, you've already planned to go to work at 8 a.m. and to say that the bus isn't coming and they all, you know, quickly have to find another option to get their child to school um, and child care. That's a huge problem. Joining us now is Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill. 
Thanks for joining us, Reed. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, schools have been having a pretty hard go at it, recovering from the COVID pandemic and getting back to normal operations. You know, we've seen a ton of things going on with schools. First off, just trying to get back to in-person classes, then the whole thing with masks. But we're also seeing staffing shortages in a lot of different areas, cafeteria workers, substitute teachers. But one that uh, states and cities are really grappling with right now, too, are school bus driver shortages. It's getting uh, increasingly difficult to get the kids to and from home back to school and all that. And, uh, you know, it's having an effect. They're getting late to classes. They're getting late back home. There's all sorts of stuff going on. So, Reed, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with these school bus drivers? So basically what happened is a year ago, this entire industry just shut down, right? If you're not going to in-person classes, you don't need the school bus drivers who can take you there. So districts across the country effectively laid off a lot of these people. And those school bus drivers either retired, you know, a lot of them might have been close to the age where they were thinking about calling it a career, or they went looking for new work. And a lot of them may have found other work in in some other field. So now when kids are headed back to in-school classes, we see a lot of these districts having trouble filling the spots that they need to get students from point A to point B, or in a lot of cases, you know, point A, B, C, D, E, F, and G (laughs) to point M, uh, which happens to be school. So in a lot of states, districts are offering extra money. They're offering parents an incentive to keep their kids out of the opt-in transportation option just in order to cut down on the number of routes that have to go out because they simply don't have the drivers who can fill these buses to get kids safely from home to school. You know, and part of it you mentioned too, right, that a lot of the drivers were close to retirement, things like that. The profile of a, of a bus driver tends to be a little older. They're using it as supplemental pay for something else possibly. You know, they're not necessarily full-time, 40 hours a week jobs. In a lot of cases, sometimes they could be, but, you know, you're driving a few hours in the morning, maybe a few hours in the afternoon, and that's kind of it. So that's a difficulty with that. And, and you know, they've long been talking about how there's low wages, very little benefits, and the hours are all over the place too. Well, actually, one of the things I discovered in talking to the, the, uh, the organizations that represent a lot of these workers is that that sort of profile of a bus driver is sort of a part-time person who's using it as supplemental income. That's not really the case anymore. Now it's a profession. It's something that people do as a full-time job. In a lot of cases, they're getting to work at 6.30, 7 in the morning. They're doing multiple routes. You know, the same driver might be doing a high school route and then a middle school route and then an elementary school route and then doing the whole thing in reverse in the afternoon. So they've got a couple hours. They've got to sit around in the middle of the day. But effectively, they're working from 6.30 in the morning until 6.30 at night when the last of the student athletes uh, head home from their, from their sports practices. So uh, that's a part of it. This, this industry that was once seen as sort of just supplemental income is now something that's professionalized. And even though it's still being paid as if it is a part-time job that somebody does not do for a full-time living, and that in and itself contributed to a whole bunch of these bus drivers thinking, wait a second, there's got to be some better job I can find. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, as we all turned to home delivery and, and we all ordered everything off Amazon or, or uh, Target or wherever, you know, whatever other online store you, you're, you're going to, more and more companies needed delivery drivers and things like that. So those jobs started paying better. And then when the school bus jobs came back, well, those school bus drivers already have better paying jobs. One of the things you mentioned, obviously, as the school districts are hurting with all of this is offering signing bonuses, uh, even offering families money to, to take your own kids to school so they don't need as many bus drivers. 
But other things that they're doing too are also easing the rules, let's say, or, or the um, qualifications you might need to qualify to be a bus driver, to get your commercial license, or just make it easier to obtain those commercial licenses. Right. And we, we should be clear here that nobody's easing the requirements uh, that, that somebody has to has to attain to become a bus driver. So we're not going to have a bunch of unqualified bus drivers driving around our kids to and from school. Instead, what we've seen at least a couple of states, New York and Maryland in particular, do is uh, sort of ease some of the hurdles that you have to go through to get a commercial driver's license. So, for example, in the state of New York, there's a rule that implemented a 14 day waiting period between between when you can take a written test and when you can take a road test to obtain your commercial driver's license. Well, Governor Kathy Hochul eliminated that 14-day waiting period in hopes of getting more people with their uh, commercial driver's license onto the road quicker. Okay, that's fine. You know, that, that's not going to compromise safety. That's just uh, aiming at, at getting people to work. In, in Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan ordered the uh, Motor Vehicle Administration, their version of the DMV, to hold a special bus driver's day uh, this coming Saturday where they're going to have special appointments set aside for people to take tests at six sites across the country or across the, the state, rather. So that's just trying to open up more avenues to get people into that sort of commercial driver's license pipeline. So yeah, states are doing extra things, but the good news is nobody's compromising any safety. Here. Right, exactly. Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. You got it. Thanks for having me. And once you're in your fitting room, something that they've tested is having a touchscreen in the fitting rooms that could be capable of ordering extra clothes to try on based on the clothes that you tried that we're trying on already and based on what you like. Joining us now is Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal covering Amazon. Thanks for joining us, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about it. Amazon has big plans for their future. Obviously, they rose to dominance in the online marketplace, but they've been expanding in you know all these past years uh, into grocery stores with Whole Foods, you know other little pop-up shops, these uh, cashierless Amazon Go stores that they have. But they're also planning to do physical department stores, sell some of their their own brand clothing, things like that. And they have some pretty high-tech plans for it with their dressing rooms and all that. Sebastian, walk us through some of this. What are the, what are we expecting from them? One thing that we know we've, they've tested is basically this idea where you scan QR codes for items that you're trying on through a smartphone app. Uh, as you're doing that, uh, associates in the back of the store are basically getting that information and collecting those items. And by the time you get to your fitting room, the items are there. And once you're in your fitting room, something that they've tested is having a touchscreen in the fitting rooms that could be capable of ordering extra clothes to try on based on the clothes that you tried that we're trying on already and based on what you liked. So that's some of the kind of what we've heard about in terms of these department stores. For them, you know, the apparel is that is a huge winner, right? I mean, they have their own brands. They contract with other brands as well. But, you know, this year they surpassed Walmart as the country's largest seller of clothing. Uh, this is uh, according to a report from Wells Fargo. So, I mean, they're planning really big on this. I mean, how many brands do they have? You know, wh wh how big a player are they with this? Yeah, they really have been pushing for their private label clothing brands. So really, one of the main parts of the report that we put out today is that the department stores, besides 
the technology that Amazon is aiming to use, they're really going to be built to show off their private label clothing. They're going to primarily be clothing stores, uh, our reporting indicates. And the reason for that is Amazon does want to push out its private label brands. Uh, they've really been growing the number of private label apparel brands that they have. They have, uh, I believe, uh, around 100 or a little more just on private label clothing brands, which I believe they launched in 2016. And they're really looking for those private label brands. So Good Threads is, is one example to really become synonymous in, in the in the. Uh, kind of fashion apparel industry, you know, just like, like anybody would think about the gap, their brands to, to be thought about in the same way for people to recognize them. And so these stores are certainly a way to do that while also trying to not only disturb the market, gain market share, but have a way to, to solve for some irritants of online and physical store shopping, uh, whether that be Obviously, people a lot of people would like to try on clothes in person and be able to do that and not have to you know return them through the through the mail because I think obviously something that's can be difficult when buying clothes online is you know you have to sometimes order different sizes you don't know how it's going to fit. Right. This is a way to kind of solve for some of that uh, with these department stores while also just really trying to grow their apparel sales. I'm one of those people. I, I really do love shopping online. The convenience of it is is so, so great. But, you know, when I'm shopping for clothes, I'm one of those kind of old school people. I guess you could say I want to touch the fabric. I want to try it on. I don't want to have to return something. So in that sense, you know, I, I, I can appreciate them expanding out like this. And, and fashion goods typically have higher profit margins. So, you know, it could be a winner for them. You did mention uh, the gap, uh, I guess, for these department stores that they're planning. They're looking for that sort of look, for that aesthetic, I guess. But what about the higher-end shopping market? I mean, is that something that's going to be rolled into these department stores as well? Yeah, from our understanding, it is primarily the type of casual wear that you see in, again, The Gap is a really good example, you know, T-shirts, jeans, that sort of stuff. They have had a higher time scaling higher-end fashion. And part of the reason for that is, Actually, Wells Fargo, that report that we that we cite in in our own reporting, pointed out that sort of Amazon's ethos basically of kind of being like the everything store that doesn't necessarily work very well with the fashion, the high end fashion industry because that's typically more you know curated assortments and and, and experiences and that sort of thing. Uh, and Amazon, you know, obviously is a place where uh, it has a lot of products and it's always known to have you know a wide variety of options that goes for their for its clothing items as well and so that necessarily has really worked well with with high-end fashion they have tried to roll out some features like this personal shopper service that basically works as a subscription service where customers get like a personalized um uh like a, a person that helps them with with styling outfits so we have seen them try to roll out some of those sort of services, uh, but that is that is a part of their apparel sort of strategy or business that hasn't done as well as just you know selling your just casual sort of clothing uh, and shoes, uh, which they they have become the largest in the nation to do that, but but struggled a bit more on the higher end fashion. Sebastian Herrera. Technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal covering Amazon. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.